The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Lord, you made this statement, this promise, a thousand years before it came to fruition. You would not let your Holy One see corruption. You would not abandon him to the grave. David wrote this, but David has a tomb and is in it. It wasn't about him. It was about another one. And we give you great thanks that that tomb is empty, that he has been raised, and that he reigns. And so our hearts can know full gladness and full joy. You've made known to us the path of life leads us into your presence where there is fullness of joy at your right hand. We give you great thanks for that, and I pray now, Lord, Would you come and teach us, remind us of things we know, stir in us affection for you, inhabit this place, Lord, control my mind and my heart. Lord, I'm prone to wander, and I know it, and I feel it, and I pray, give me grace to focus me in here. And for my brothers and sisters and friends here, the same, Lord, give them grace to focus them, give them grace to think and concentrate, remember, see, know, Love and worship. Open the scriptures to us, I pray, Lord, and lift up Christ. Amen. King David did write that. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, Psalm 16 there. That he was not abandoned to Sheol, nor did his soul, flesh, see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's Peter from Acts 2. From Acts 3 then, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied before Pilate, though he had determined to let him go. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. But now he has raised him up and sent him to you as a blessing to turn you from your wickedness. That's the preaching of the early church again and again and again, constantly. By your wickedness, Israel, by your wickedness, Gentiles, by your wickedness, world, all of you, you denied the righteous one and killed the author of life. And God said, "Uh uh-uh. You reject him, I approve of him. You deny him, I embrace him. This is the one. I make him here now, Lord and Christ. And I reach out to you with word about him that is full of hope.
That was their message. Universal guilt and great hope. And at the center of it, always, every time, the resurrection of Christ. Every sermon in the book of Acts centers on the resurrection. God's stamp on him. This is the one. You're in trouble before God, but there is hope because Christ has been raised. So we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 20. Two weeks ago, in chapter 19, we saw Christ the King crucified, lifted up on a cross between two criminals, his clothing divided by lots that the scripture might be fulfilled, drinking sour wine from a hyssop branch in order to fulfill the scripture. Pierced but no bone broken in order to fulfill the scripture. Buried in a rich man's tomb in accordance with the scripture. That's the constant refrain of chapter 19. This all was according to fulfill the scripture. It was what had been written coming to pass. This is God's plan focusing here on Christ. Finished, completed. It is finished, said Jesus. The scripture is is finished. The plan of God is finished. All of it focusing right there on him. From the side of Jesus has been opened up a fount of blessing. Cleansing, sin-covering blood, life-giving water coming out of the side of him. Come to him. Bathe in this. Drink it in. Embrace it. It's the message of chapter 19. But we look at that from a totally different perspective than they did. For us, looking back at it, it, it's victory, it's blessing. But from where they stood, most of them had actually run away, but from where John and a few of the women stood, it was a crushing defeat. Jesus had been captured, tried, and killed. Game over. Complete loss. Which is why the events of chapter 20 are utterly shocking. I'm going to begin reading the passage, capturing the last couple verses of chapter 19 to get back into the flow of this, and then move on into 20, reading up through verse 18. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went right into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must be raised from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him again, Sir, they've carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. As we get ready to walk back through this passage, notice that it begins and ends with Mary, and in the middle it has a scene with John and Peter. There are are two different scenes of a play here, if you will, and they're serving two different purposes. One, to make us aware of a fact, to prove a fact, and the other one, to explain that fact. It begins with Mary and some of the other women who went with her, but Mary's the only one named so as to keep it very personal and, and focused on an individual. Mary goes while it's dark. John makes that point. We should be alert to symbolism here because John often uses light and dark to carry meaning. Mary goes to the tomb in the dark. The sun's going to come up and dawn on her, and she's going to see some things. She doesn't see him yet. She goes to the grave and is startled by what she finds. They'd gone to the tomb to finish the anointing process that had been cut off when the Sabbath came. So they kind of had a little pause in the burial ritual while the Sabbath happened, and they were going back to finish that. But she gets there, and kind of like if you were to come home and find your front door standing wide open, she stops because that's odd. Something's going on here. And what immediately leaps to her mind is grave theft. They've taken the body. They've taken it away. And that's what she says when she runs and tells Peter and John. They've taken him away. And that's what they're thinking as they come to the tomb. They've taken him away. Somebody's robbed him, robbed the tomb of him. Grave robbery was a somewhat common occurrence in that time. People would break into tombs to steal the valuables that were in there. Maybe the family had buried some things, some heirlooms perhaps. If nothing else, the the linen that the bodies were actually wrapped in and the spices, those were very expensive things. People would take them. That might sound a little gross to us. A cloth that somebody has been buried in, you want to take that and have it? Maybe they'd want to have it, maybe they'd want to sell it, but these things were very valuable in that day. Remember how the soldiers actually wanted Jesus' clothing? They considered themselves fortunate to, to get the clothing of a condemned man. Clothing was valuable, and so they want this clothing, and they would often rob graves to take these sorts of things. That's what they're expecting has happened. Maybe a rich man's new tomb looked like a good target. So that's what they think when they, they're going there. However, when they arrive, John stoops down and looks in. It probably would have been about a three-feet-high hole there at the mouth. He looks in, 
and the, the grave cloths, the most valuable thing there is they're still there. That's different. So he stopped there. Peter comes and goes right in. And then John follows him in. And you can read in verse 6, Peter and John again see the linen cloths, the most valuable item present. The face cloth, which had been wrapped around the head to hold the jaw in place, it's there, folded up in its own place. Spices are still there. Something's going on here. This is not just strips of of cloth scattered all around the tomb. They're wrapped up in roughly the shape of the body with the spices mixed in, the head cloth set off to the side. This is highly unusual. John looks at that with the same eyes that saw Jesus killed and buried, same eyes now see these facts. He looks, he sees, and he believes. Not because the scriptures had conditioned him to believe. That's an important point in this story. This is not a testimony about some belief or an impression or a gut feeling. This is a testimony of two men That's legally permissible testimony. Two men, it's admissible into a court. Two men testifying, I saw these facts even though I did not think they could be. They had not been reading the scriptures and expecting this. This is no wish fulfillment. They're shocked by it. But it's right there. They're so shocked they just go home stunned in silence. Luke tells us that Peter went home pondering what he had seen. What happened? John believes. And they go home. Focus then shifts to Mary again in verse 11. She stands there weeping. And her emotional state here is an issue. It's repeated twice in this verse that she's weeping. And then both times that she's spoken to, the question is, why are you weeping? She's gripped by sorrow. She's overcome with this emotion of sorrow. She's blinded by her tears, if you will. She looks in just like John did, so she'd see the same thing. The sun's coming up even more, so it's even more visible in there. She sees the same stuff, and more so, there are two angels sitting there, wearing official angel uniform, shining white clothes. She doesn't see it. She has a conversation with these two guys. What is she thinking? That they just appeared and somehow snuck by and walked in there and are sitting in the tomb, looking like angels, asking her, why are you weeping? She explains the grave theft theory. Open your eyes, Mary. There's the the clothing right there. There's the face cloth. There's the two angels talking to you. Open your eyes. And then Jesus talks to her, but she doesn't think it's Jesus, thinks it's the gardener. He asks her the same question. Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Look closely. Who are you looking for? She gives him the same answer. And then the shepherd calls his sheep by name, Mary. Graciously opens her eyes and she sees. Falls down at his feet and clutches him. Other Gospels give us that detail. He's clutching at his feet and he says, Don't clutch me. Don't grasp me. Not just don't touch me. We'll come back to that later. But don't grab hold of me. I'm in process here. We'll explain that later. He gives her a message to go and tell to his brothers. 
which she does. For all of her sorrow, and how she doesn't look that good in that situation, she is the first one sent with the message message of the resurrection. She's the first one Jesus appears to, a woman, and a counterintuitive for that culture. Two scenes, Peter and John and Mary, serving two different purposes in this passage. We're going to look at those two purposes in greater detail, but together what they're pointing us towards, what they're urging us to, to grab a hold of and how we're urged to respond here is to hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus who has been raised and has ascended to glory. It's the main point of this passage. This Jesus right here is the one you are to hope in because he has been raised and has ascended to glory. We'll begin with the first purpose here. In some ways, this first point was so obvious that, that I almost just skipped over it. Then I thought, no, this is the main point here. We're trying to establish a concrete fact. John and and Peter's account, they're trying to establish a concrete fact. Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead. Jesus has been raised, for sure. John saw it with his own eyes. Women who were there, the soldiers who were there, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, all of them all saw him really dead. Saw the fluids come out of his side. He wrapped up his dead body. He was as dead as can be, put in the grave. And he recounts those facts to us, chapter 19 says, so that you'll believe. Not just so that you'll believe he's dead, that's part of it, but so that you'll be set up to believe even more here in this chapter. He was dead, and then with the very same eyes, John saw the empty tomb. He doesn't know everything. This is confusing for him, but he knows there's nobody here, and I didn't do anything to him. None of us did. We're scared out of our minds. All of the disciples are hiding behind a locked door. They're not coming to the tomb to try to fake a resurrection. That's not going to give them any courage. It's not grave theft. What kind of thief leaves the valuables, folds them up nicely again, and runs off with a dead, naked body? That didn't happen. It's not the Romans and the Jews. They want him right here and posted a guard to make sure of it. What's left? John believes that he was raised. And so that we don't discount his testimony, we have Mary's facts too. Two angels in the tomb. Jesus, bodily present. He can be grabbed hold of. Jesus was dead. Jesus is alive again. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. That is a concrete, objective fact. It became the central message proclaimed by the apostles, preached everywhere. It's the foundation of Christianity. So much so that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus was not bodily raised from the dead, this whole thing is utterly false. But if he was bodily raised from the dead, every other religion in the world, all 10,000 of them, including atheism, all of them are utterly false. On the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Christianity takes its stand. And it is a unique foundation to stand on. Think this through. 
all other religions. Their foundations are philosophical or theological or rooted in some miracle perhaps that's unverified and unverifiable. It's not that there's no theology or philosophy or miracles in Christianity, but there's an extreme difference at the very bottom level foundation. Consider Islam, for instance. One man receives revelation from God. And that itself follows on that one man's experience in a cave all by himself where he claims God came and spoke to him in the form of an angel. And that one man is the only one who receives revelation and is the only one qualified to interpret the revelation. How do you verify that? That's not objective. That's all subjective. I'm left to look at him and decide, do I think that's true or not? Do I buy what he tells me? There's no evidence. There's nothing I can evaluate. There's nothing concrete there. That's subjective. You understand the difference between something that's objective and subjective? Objective is outside of you. It's concrete, verifiable. For, ex- for example, if you buy a cup of coffee and you hold it in your hand, the steam's rolling off of it, and you say, this coffee is hot. That's an objective statement. Put your finger in it. Take a sip of it. It'll scald you. You can test it. You can put a thermometer in it and take its temperature. That's an objective statement. This coffee is good is a subjective statement. We may differ on whether it's good. Some people like Starbucks. Some people don't. Some people like Dunkin' Donuts. Some people hate all coffee totally. Hot, objective, good, subjective. When we're trying to evaluate Muhammad and what he says, that's subjective. There's no way we can evaluate what he claims happens to him, receiving some word and then transmitting it to us. All you can do is decide, do I believe his statements or not? We're not left there with Christianity. We're left evaluating evidence of an event. The resurrection was preached in Jerusalem where the crucifixion happened, where the tomb was, to the Jewish leaders who killed him, right after it all happened. And they said, you killed him, God raised him, 500 people here have seen him. That can be checked out. That can easily be put down. How do you destroy that argument? Wheel out a body, put it on Main Street in Jerusalem. End of discussion. And anybody will do, because it would have been decayed. No one could have identified him. Why didn't they try that? Because hundreds of people knew it was not true that this body's Jesus. Hundreds of people had seen Jesus killed and alive again, including this guy Peter who's preaching it to them. This guy had been terrified of us. And now he's telling us that we killed the Christ. A changed life not based on a belief about some teaching in the Bible or religious book. A changed life based upon a fact, an event. They didn't try to fake the body because nobody would have bought that one. They instead said, stop talking about this. Stop it. Be quiet. But they didn't. And all of us 
have to face this fact. Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead. And if you're a believer, you face that fact and you glory in it. When the storms of life come and blow your ship, and you're rocking and rolling and blowing all over the place, stop and remember, I am anchored to a fact. The tomb was empty. Christ was bodily raised. This is true. I'm confused about a lot of other stuff, but that much is true. Christ was raised. What that means, we'll come to that in a little bit. But if you're not a believer, you have to face this too. And watch out, because the human condition, here's what we do when we're faced with something we don't want to deal with. We change the channel. We try to squash and suppress. Try to get everybody to move on. You tell me, Steve, you have a problem with anger. And I say, so does Bob. Boy, you ever seen Bob? And you, you're one of the worst gossips I've ever met. Which may all be true and has nothing to do with my problem with anger. I try to suppress your word to get you on the defense, to defend yourself. And maybe we can come together and talk about how bad Bob is so we can avoid talking about this fact I don't want to face. The Bible says Christ was raised from the dead. And somebody, somebody will respond, there are so many hypocritical Christians. Which is true and irrelevant. If the tomb was empty and Christ was raised, you have to deal with that regardless of hypocritical Christians. That's a fact of history. Face it, don't change the channel. Deal with it and say, Lord, I want the truth more than I want my position. I want the truth more than I want my, my culture. More than I want my friends. I want the truth because I must have you. Show me what this means, this empty tomb. That gets us to the second purpose of the passage. Jesus has been raised, but why? Was it just a miracle that's trying to like show off the power of God? No. There's more meaning to it than that. It's the second purpose of this passage, to make clear that God has raised Jesus from the dead in order to raise him up on high. He has raised him from the dead so as to raise him up on high, so as to exalt him, to cause him to be ascended up into the heavenlies, to come to sit at the right hand of the throne of power and to reign. He has been raised so as to be raised. It's the point of the, the statement, the message that Jesus gives Mary in verse 17. Begins with a puzzling statement. Mary, don't cling to me. He doesn't mean don't touch me. He's okay with being touched. He's comfortable with that. He actually encourages Thomas to touch him a little bit later to prove that I'm here bodily. I can be grasped and touched. You can see the holes. He doesn't mean don't touch me. He says, 
Don't grip me and hold on to me and clamp hold of me here as your old teacher, just like I used to be. I'm more than that. Don't clamp hold of me, for, it continues, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Picture like an escalator. He's come out of the basement. Mary's on the first floor, wants to grab him and pull him off. He says, I'm actually going to the third floor. Don't grab hold of me and try to hold me here. I am ascending. Go, go tell my brothers that I am in the process of ascending. That's the message that he wants her to carry. This rejected one is being exalted. They must know that. We must know that. Because while he hangs on the cross and while he's buried in the tomb, it looks like a total failure. Rejected by God. A blasphemer. All that stuff that he had claiming to be God, the I am in the flesh. Claiming to be the fountain of life, the light of the world. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Claiming all the while that he's obeying God and that God approves of him. Baloney, look at him there, cursed by God, put in a tomb. But three days later, God brings him out and said, No, 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 no. Approved by God. Cursed, yes, but approved. Cursed to be a blessing to you, and now approved, stamped. This is the one, and I raise him up to show that. This one who you rejected is now here, Lord and Christ, Master and Deliverer. That's what the resurrection does for Jesus. It's not just a show of God's power, it's a stamp of approval. It doesn't make him the Messiah, he didn't become the second person of the Trinity at that moment. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, God was the Word. Verse 1 of the book, he's always been God, he's always been the Messiah, he's always been the Christ. But he is stamped, he's established at that in the eyes of all the world. The resurrection proves that. It raises him up. Paul can say in Colossians 1, he is the firstborn among the dead, from among the dead, that he might be preeminent in everything. That he might reign over and be supreme over everything. Preeminent over all powers, over all people. Preeminent over all plans, giving perspective to all problems. This is God's messianic king. This is God's deliverer. This is the focus of God's plan. Proven by resurrection. On Him we must fix all of our affection, all of our attention, give all of our allegiance. This is the one. And marvelously, though we don't do that, He's held out to us some hope. He's held out to us as a blessing, not yet a curse. This is the one we're supposed to fashion all, fasten all of our affection to. We don't, but there's still hope. There's still mercy. There's a little hint of it in verse 17 as well. Not all the details are there. There's a little hint of it, though, in that what does he call the disciples who all abandoned him and ran away? My brothers. 
What does he say about God the Father that he's going to? It's my God, my Father, and yours too. There's still hope. There's still a way to God in this one. All the details aren't there. You've got to read the rest of the book to get that. But he has made a way to turn us from our wickedness, as Peter preached in Acts. Turn us from our wickedness to Christ, and in faith we can be united to God. We can become brothers, not just servants, not just friends, brothers of Jesus. In the family of God. And if God in Christ is for you, what in the world can be against you? Why are you weeping? See how this can address weeping? Focus on weeping here because it seems to be an issue in this passage. Sorrow. You can address all other kinds of human problems. But sorrow seems to be the issue here. Mary is weeping. She's trapped in sorrow. And essentially Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? I know what you're sorrowful about, but open your eyes and look. The risen Christ is standing right here. He is ascending to place from which he reigns. Take heart. Now, he doesn't mean you can't weep about anything. That sorrow is all bad all the time. That's, that's not true. We are human beings who experience a full range of emotions. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him. It's not that weeping is wrong. Not what I'm saying here. But sorrow and tears are only half the story. Sorrow and tears are looking at part of life, disappointment, loss, And the other part of life is a raised and reigning, exalted Christ. Mary, you're only looking at one half. Open your eyes and look at the other half right here. Don't miss Christ amidst your sorrow. I'm here. God's up to something. See. And go tell my disciples as they're trapped in fear in the upper room. He's raised And he's being raised. This week, middle of this week, Erica, our youngest daughter, uh, took a little fall, and as the day was wearing on into the night, she started to act really lethargic and could hardly stay awake and threw up a bunch of times and was not looking good. When you're a parent and you're looking at one of your kids in that situation, you begin to get just a little worried. Everything turned out just fine, but at the time, your mind runs, and then when you call the doctor, the doctor says, well, if there's any bleeding on her brain, we should probably get that looked at. You think, that doesn't sound good. Maybe we'll get that looked at. She's fine, it's okay, but at the time, my mind's starting to run. And Heidi took her to the hospital, and I'm sitting at home, and I'm thinking, I looked at a picture of her there on our piano and thought, I would be heartbroken to lose her. I don't think it's that bad, but what do I know? I would be heartbroken to lose her. And I know that I'm getting ready to preach this sermon. I'm working on that during this week. And so I'm thinking about what difference does any of this make 
in this situation in my life? Is, is it such that over here I've got real life and over here I've got the theology of John chapter 20 and the reality of the empty tomb? And never the two shall meet. Or is there some connection there? And as I'm thinking about that a little bit, what I come to, maybe there's more connection than this, but what I come to is, if Christ calls me brother and says, I'm going to your father, that I'm in the family and then tons of things from Romans 8 start flying into my mind. Steve, if God is for you, who can be against you? Steve, can anything separate you from the love of God? Anything? No. Steve, will this all be used by sovereign Christ to work towards good in your life? Yes, but... Yes, but... That's the wrestling of real life. The two are not forever separated. The two are, are mixed in together. Not one eliminated, the two together. Wrestling. Sometimes one has the upper hand, sometimes the other has the upper hand. But they're right there. And what you have to do is wrestle with them. To preach this to yourself. The tomb is empty. This is true. Christ is raised. Christ is reigning over my life, over my daughter's life. I'll be heartbroken to lose her. But God says, I only do you good. How can that be? It is. The tomb was empty. Will he not also, along with him, give me all good things? Romans 8 again. Yes. How can this be good? I don't know. But it is, because God's not a liar. And the tomb was empty. You've got to bring your world and this fact together and wrestle with that. It'll go better sometimes than others. It's an easy one for me because everything worked out just fine. But that was this week for me. There could be other things. You put all this together and you say to yourself, Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. He's come out of the tomb and he reigns. Hope in Christ who has been raised and has ascended to glory. Let me encourage you. Think through this now. Pray. We're moving towards communion now. I'm going to give you a few minutes to think, pray, apply it to your life. Take some sorrow from your own life and stick it together with this fact. I know most of you know this. Stick it together with the troubles of your life and wrestle with them. I'll give you a few minutes to pray now and then I'll close this in prayer and move us towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.